Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Marianne Tugesson, a student assistant at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Today we welcome our special guest, Stine Simonsen-Puri, who is a teaching associate professor at the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies at Copenhagen University. Additionally, Steen is also part of the Faculty of Modern India and South Asian Studies, as well as board member of the Nordic Center India. So first of all, welcome to you, Steenu. Thank you very much, Mayana. Today, I'm very excited to discuss your work about Christian encounters with South Indian temple dance, where you especially have been focusing on this dance form, Bada Tanajum. And I'm very excited to hear about it. I know you have done this long-term fieldwork various times in both rural and urban India, as well as published a large number of peer-reviewed articles on India's culture, society, and economy. So this is very interesting to have you in today. And I think the first thing we can do is, how about you give us some insight in your fieldwork and in the dance form, Bharatanatrium, like what made you interested in this dance form? Yes, thank you very much, Mayane. So this dance, Bharatanatrium, was actually something I encountered when I first went to study at a university in New Delhi. Jawaharlal Nehru University. I did that during my BA studies in anthropology, actually. So I'd gone to India to study anthropology there. And because I love to dance, I, while studying at the university, I decided to take some dance classes and dance institute closest by was this institute where you could learn Bharatanatyam, which is like one of the recognized national dances of India also. So during my studies, I went for dance classes twice a week, and that really grew on me. So Bharatanatyam is a dance form that kind of has a long history. The word Bharatanatyam actually means the dance of India, and that's a newer name that was given in the 30s when there was kind of a reinvention of some older dances that was done around Hindu temples in South Asia. So it's a dance form where you, among other things, depict stories from Hindu mythology. So it's kind of more like dance drama because it's not just kind of abstract dance. It's actually also storytelling through dance. And you dance not just to music, but the songs you dance are these poems where these stories are told. So you kind of visualize stories that are part of these poems that talk about stories of the Hindu gods and goddesses. Also, the the physical elements kind of resemble a lot of depictions you see on Hindu temples of dance positions. So there's a resemblance between, like in, in a lot of old Hindu temples, they actually have these little carvings of people dancing. And the movements in Bharatanatyam resembles the movements you can see there in the temples. So I, I got really, really interested in this dance and, and actually ended up when I was, after a year of being in Delhi, I had this feeling that I had actually learned more through the dance than in the university. Like I had gotten deeper in my understanding of certain things that I was seeing society 
I had gotten kind of an embodied feeling of certain things. So that meant that when I was to do my MA thesis, I was like, I'm going to go and do my field work at this same dance institute. So for six months, I became like a dance student of Bhartanatyam. So I, every day I participated in all the dance classes and I talked to the dancers. I went to dance performances and I also started reading about the history of the dance. So this is kind of my initial interest in the dance of Bhartanatyam. But the article that I know you have read, which is called Christian Encounters with Bhartanatyam, that comes out of another study which was later where I was associated with the Trankipa Initiative Research Project, where a lot of scholars were researching different aspects of Trankipa, the former Danish colony in India. And as part of that, the Esther Feel, who I was working with, she made me aware of these parts in this diary from 1600 of Jon Olafsson, a guy, a soldier standing guard on this fort in the colony. And, and he actually wrote quite a bit on this dance that he saw every day in the temples. So this was an example of an early history of the dance that has developed into its current form that I took part in. So this was a long answer. It's just to give you a sense of my way into this. So I've done a lot of other research and fieldwork in other places, but my the fieldwork tied specifically to dance is actually my MA thesis fieldwork. But then I've done additional historical research tied to the Trankebar research project. It's very interesting, this part with Trankebar, because it used to be this Danish colonial city. So there was already this Christian Hindu encounter back in the 17th century that you highlight also in your paper. Maybe can you explain what are some of these encounters that already happened at this early time in the 17th century? I mean, there was, along with the Danish trading post, as some people will also say it, because it's not like a colony in the in the sense that we see other places. It was kind of a small place that the Danes bought from a local king to have a presence in India to enable trade with India also. But along with that also, there was also, what to say, more missionary activity there. So they came a little later. So you also had like a Christian interest in converting Hindus to Christianity, especially the lower caste Hindus. So they were kind of also seeing Christianity as a way a way out for certain people of of India. So you had encounters at many levels. You had political encounters. You had the kind of mercantile trade encounters around Trangipar. And then also you had people with like, there's been some research on kind of more um, encounters in the more intimate (laughs) spheres, like in the family lives, what were the encounters around Indian servants with Danish merchants, But my interest was also what I saw in this diary was interesting to see this kind of, by reflecting on these dancers, you also saw a single person reflecting on religion and perceptions of religion and morality and also the 
the role of the the woman in religion and and of sexuality and the performing body and stuff like that. So I saw it, even though it's a lot, I mean, it's just one person looking at these dancers every day, but it's still a kind of unique source because there's not that much written. And also a lot of what's been written on the early history of the dance are not necessarily from that little places. Then it's more like from the larger courts that you have, maybe European travelers coming to the king's court. And then you hear about the dancer's role in the courts because they both have a role in the courts and then they have it on these little more kind of village temples. So I was also trying to understand what was the difference between dancers in the villages and in the courts. But of course, also how did like a guy, a Christian guy coming from actually from Iceland, which was part of the Danish kingdom at the time, like how was, what did he think about these dancers? So just to say that the thing, the reason why he could even see them was that these dancers, which some people refer to as divdasis, it's kind of a more generalized term of temple dances in India. They were not called divdasis necessarily at that time, but divdasis were these women that were kind of actually ritually married to the gods that was residing in the temple that they were associated with. So they were often um, young girls that were given to to temples at an early age to kind of devote their lives in the service of the temple. And now that I'm telling the story, just to, I mean, it's not like there's a uniform version of the story because they're kind of, it's a lot of people who have interest in this, the history of the Devdasis and maybe we'll come into that a bit later because at a certain point it becomes also a very political issue in India. So these uh, Devdasis, they kind of make the temple, <laughs> they take care of the temple, but also they take care of these statues and they actually dance in front of the statues. To understand this, it's important to to understand what a statue is in Hinduism because a statue is not just a representation of the god, it also kind of contains the god in a certain way like so it's it's a it's a material representation of the god so it's also a way to access the god so if you dance so dance in front of a god it pleases the god makes the god happy the gods like dance you know but you also they were waving when it was hot they could be kind of wave air air, fanning the god they would give the put milk or water in front of the statues of the god and once a day they would actually bring some of these little images of the gods outside the temple they would kind of have a certain a procession around the temples and this is also how at this guy standing on the fort he would see these dancers dance during these processions and processions was also an important part of Hinduism at the time, because it was actually also a way that you connected the temple with an area. So you would walk in an area, like kind of defining that area as an area that belonging to the temple, so to say, or the temple belonging to that area. And this is also because the temple was not just a religious institution, it was also a political institution. So like kings, they would build temples, also as a method to 
get area, so to say, right? To get their power within that area. So it's also a political institution. And then again, and the guards are moved around in that area. So it's also a way of extending. It's also a political unit that you are producing through the processions. So I, I hope to have given some images of what he was actually seeing. Yes, definitely. And also, it's nice to have that historical view on it as well, because you later come into how it became this national dance, Bharatanatyam. So what is the transformation? How did it start with the Devadasi's temple dancers to be become this national dance? First of all, like I'm making a narrative of continuity, so to say. So I'm linking Bharatanatyam today with the past. And that's also an analytical continuity because the in reality, there's a lot of diversity and a lot of different dance traditions. But then at a certain point, they also get intertwined with national interests and national debates, so to say. So it's a process of, like, there's many layers. It's not, it's not just a continuity from that to that. It's like it's being made. So and first of all, the time, 60, early 1600, when we heard of the of Olofsson's encounter with these dancers, there was, these dancers were, there was a link to the, what to say, the kingdom, the king in Tanjavur, meaning that the good dancers could, I mean, there was an exchange of dancers between the village temples and the king, the court, who also had a quarter where he kind of, where he supported dance as an art form. This is actually even a little later, maybe more also like 1500, 1600. So the king hired musicians, hired poets to develop songs for these dances. So you had like a certain kind of professionalization of, of the dance part. In the local temples, it was more kind of the dance, it was more kind of dance was one, it was not entertainment as much as it was kind of a ritual role in maintaining the temple. But once that the dancers were brought into the courts, it was also kind of uh, developed as more aesthetic form that was not necessarily tied to in the rituals, but was nourished as an art form, you could say, even though it was still dances that was about Hindu gods and goddesses, but it was not done in the temples. And some of these dancers, and of course also you have a history of harems in the courts, like different ways that the kings also had access to to women. So it's also a little bit linked to this that Oh, it's actually a little difficult to, to know exactly how this kind of also the prostitution angle comes into it. Because also at the village level, you you know of examples where the patron of the temple, so the man who actually financed the temple and financed the ongoing running of the temple, that the Devdasis or some of the Devdasis, they were ritually married to the gods of the temple, meaning that they could, they were not to be married to any man. They were not to have a domestic life in that sense, but they would also be like the concubines 
of the patrons of these temples. So they could have a sexual relationship with a rich man that had, what to say, not owned the temple, but paid for the temple. So in that sense, had a strong connection to the temples. And it's difficult to say what this, I mean, as we see in many societies, these concubine, the concubine figure is an interesting one because the question is, of course, is it a horrible situation for the concubine or is it actually kind of nice <laughs> in the sense that you have these uh, women who actually like are brought into these kind of, they're brought into to wealth, so to say. And also they were, they were in many areas, they were the only ones who could actually, who actually, for example, owned land or owned their own jewelries and all. So they were given a lot of gifts as concubines. So they actually developed their own wealth because they were not married. Otherwise, the wealth will, in an Indian family, at least at this time, was the man's wealth. So there was a certain level of like individual standing, you could say, tied to this position. And then also you hear critics saying that you cannot romanticize this. It's, you know, hardcore <laughs> sex labor and it's, we should not try to romanticize this. I can just say that Bartonachum dancers of today romanticize Devdasis. They dream of like, they say, I think I've been a Devdasi in an earlier life, or they look actually kind of, or I've encountered many who think positively about that position where you are devoted to dance because they love to dance. These I'm saying like Bartonachum dancers who really, really live for the dance. They have sexual freedom. Like they can have sexual relationships to different men. No one owns them. They have, they can develop their own wealth and stuff. So there's a certain romanticization of the Devdasis. In the end, we can't really know, huh? right? <laughs> it's many years ago. What we can know is that, that in the late 1800, you see the beginning of a political movement against the Devdasi institution, so to say, that was primarily led by British and um, an Indian elite, where the Devdasi institution was kind of called out as an example of what to say, the problems of localized Hindu customs and the problems of the Hindu relationship to the woman. So Devdasis became like a hot political topic. It was became like an evidence of the de degradation of Hinduism. So for the elite Indian, at that time there was what we called neo Neo-Vedantic Hindu movement, which was kind of an, a more intellectual approach to Hinduism. So so it was it was more kind of philosophical approach to Hinduism that actually tried to <laughs> clean up Hinduism in their own way, in the sense that they were pointing at something like the Devdasi rituals, institutions, saying that's not real Hinduism. Look in these texts, look at the Vedas. There's nothing in the Vedas. In the Vedas, you see the woman having a, a very important position, 
but this is an example of the degradation of Hinduism. And but they were very much also talking along the line of the British colon colonialists <laughs> that were also legitimizing in many ways their presence in India as a way to protect the Indians a little bit from their own culture, like coming with modernity and progress and civil rights and equality. <laughs> you can question that. But the possibilities for for new kinds of equality, they were coming with all those inputs. And Hinduism was kind of an, an example of its anti-thesis. So, so the British legitimized also their presence there in a way of like they, they needed with their legal system to save Indians a little bit from themselves, so to say. Yes, so it became very political uh, political in the end of 1800 and also beginning of 1900 and was also central for the beginning of an Indian feminist movement that was also, again, led by a certain Indian cultural elite. But what's interesting in the 1930s is still, you, then you start having kind of a counter-narrative actually from some of the women that, from the actual Devdasi, so to say, <laughs> that was opposing the kind of image that was being portrayed about the Devdasi dance. So what's interesting is that the name Pratanatyam is actually given, is given to the dance by a high-caste woman who took upon herself to learn the dance and to, to kind of take it out of its context and take it out of the kind of relationships that was in, where there was prostitution involved and then bringing it to kind of a national stage. So in the 1930s and 40s, you see the dance being kind of taken from one strata of society to another and taking from some cultural context to another, and then it was also named Bharatanatyam, the dance of India. But at the same time, the original Devdasis were strongly opposing to this rebranding of the of the whole dance. They were, because as part of the kind of new phase of this dance was also kind of a downplaying actually of eroticism. So it became very kind of proper dance. But an important part of the dance is also these, for example, erotic relationship between Krishna and his girlfriend, you could say Radha, which are part of the stories of Hinduism. Very interesting to hear how the image switched and how maybe there are still elements of an old image and how they all kind of intertwine together. I think that's very interesting. And how did you see that image when you were doing fieldwork? Because that has been in the recent years. What kind of encounters did you meet there, both the, with Christianity and Hinduism and with the image of the dance? In a way, there is this tension in among dancers today about like the idea of finding like a certain purity. A purity is a very kind of Vedic value, a very Brahmanic value, like that the dance has to be pure, meaning also that it cannot be too mundane and also too erotic. So you have dancers indirectly censoring each other by kind of emphasizing the importance of the purity of the dance. But then you also have, at the same time, you have dancers who, who challenge this way of 
using the body and censoring and kind of brings more um, sensuality into the dance. And also when I was interviewing dancers, I found that a lot of, I was interviewing young, young dancers. I was particularly interested in like dancers between maybe 16 and 24. This time also around where they were like becoming socialized into being women and maybe they were starting to think about getting married and how the dance kind of the role of the dance in this socialization into also being a good Indian woman, so to say. So, but these young dancers was actually very sensual in their way of talking about dance. So for example, they would say, when I dance, dance about Krishna, I imagine him to be my boyfriend. And this is how the emotion comes out. And this would be an example of a very mundane, what to, to say, relationship to the dance. So I more see it kind of a, as a tension that is there. But right now, it's definitely moving towards dancers taking themselves more and more freedom also to use the dance as a form for more individual expression, where historically it's been more about maintaining a cultural heritage, so about imitating or like to carry over choreographies and dances and expressions from a guru to to a student, you know, so kind of an uh, the idea of not breaking this tradition where today also with kind of the growing of a more individualized mindset, people are also questioning whether they should live in joint families, the women want their own money, stuff like that. It also shows in the dance, it reflects in the dance, this change of a general ethics, at least in the urban India. Because it's primarily now the dance are really practiced in urban India, even though it used to be much more in village India. Your second question was in relationship to Christian encounters with the dance. And of course, just to remind, where's this question? Why is it interesting? It's, of course, in the article that you read, I tried to tie this 1600 view upon dance with the fact that actually a lot of Christians do Prathanatyam today. So I was like, okay, how can I <laughs> bring these two things together? So my idea was actually like whether there's in this in Christian encounter with the dance, whether one can see also a difference in, the, in what it means to be like in Christians and in Hindus relationship to the God or ideas of what is divine or stuff like that. And of course, with this one guy I looked into, and also just understanding the context in which he grew out of this very central role of a woman, first of all, in the ritual context, was not really what you saw in the Christian church at that time. And also the eroticism was also something that was, at that time, really had been pushed out. So his encounter with it was really very judgmental, you could say. Like he would call them whores, the, dan the temple whores, right? So, uh, so he was very, had a very kind of demeaning view on them, which I argued also should be understood in the context of Christianity at the time without having like, without being an expert in that. But that was kind of an argument I tried gently to put out there. So 
uh, moving up to today, of course, I was like, wow, that is so interesting. There's so in the dance school, there was like a relatively large group of Christian dancers who was only doing dance. They had gotten scholarships to do dance. When I interviewed them, they told me like what what I was told was that they found that the dance gave them a form, a way to really connect deeply with God. So even though they were doing a dance on Krishna, that was not that important for them. It was just a reflection of God. Actually, interesting note is that many, uh, many Indians actually think that Christ, Jesus Christ, is a later incarnation of Vishnu, and an earlier incarnation is actually Krishna. So in that sense, Krishna and Jesus would both be incarnations of Vishnu. But not that they were actually telling me this specifically, but in a way, it was that idea that was behind them that it doesn't matter so much that it's Krishna. What's important here is that the dance enables me to really connect with God in whatever form. And that particular way of connecting is this very embodied way. Like it's at a very emotional level where you really get to a very embodied encounter. So that I found very interesting, that it was in the dance and they didn't see in, in the Christian church, like for example, dances that was part of that tradition that could give them the same access to God, so to say. Yes, very, very interesting. It has been some years since you also published now. Are there any new things on the topic that you would like to add on? I mean, if I was to do a study today on Bharatanatyam, I would add also how it is getting politicized in new ways today, in the sense that it is really being branded as a heritage of India, but in a new context. So, for example, when you land in a Delhi airport, there are posts, like there's, no, not in Delhi airport, in the metro. When you take the metro from Delhi airport, in a lot of stations or in several t- stations, you'll see like huge posters of dancers. You can also see it kind of on other billboards. They're used in advertisements. So they're kind of being made like an image of India, but also of a Hindu India. Because what is very characteristic of India right now is that it has this kind of very, what we would say, Hindu national agenda, like that India as a nation is really politically being pushed forward as a Hindu nation. So also with the prime minister doing big yoga parades and yoga in itself being becoming very politicized. So, so this is another example of how the dance also is, the dancers are kind of these perfect embodiments of Hindu values. So, so that, if I was to do another study, I would look more into that also having in mind that I have a big interest in kind of body politics. Yes. I will definitely try to notice if I go in, yeah, go to India yes. in the next future. Thank you so much, Dina, for joining us today. It has been beyond exciting to hear about. And thank you also for the listeners. 
thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.